I'd like to begin by, uh, with an illustration today written by a man named Emo Phillips some time ago. Obviously, this is absurd, but you'll pick up on that. He writes, Once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump. I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. And I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. I said, me too. I said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great, Le Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I, I said, die, heretic. And I pushed him over. Now, we laugh at the absurdity of this illustration, but it's absolutely true. Not only do we live in the most polarized country that we've ever had in our 200 plus years of history, but as you probably know, the Christian church is increasingly polarized in America today as well. And to make matters much worse, the polarization in the country generally is over somewhat sub substantive issues. But the polarization in the Christian church often is over matters that are downright silly and stupid. As stupid, as silly as this illustration. Little tiny distinctions that don't make a bit of difference. We divide. There are churches, and I mean many, that have been divided over the color of the carpet, the color of the paint, what we use in, in communion, what Bible we use in the pews, and a thousand other issues. Most of them are absolutely ridiculous. And yet we keep dividing and dividing and dividing to the tune of some, some say up to 40,000 different Protestant denominations, 40,000 in the world today. That's craziness, but it's true. That is not what God wants. In fact, it is the absolute opposite of what God wants. And because we as Christians are so accustomed to dividing and dividing and dividing all the time, it has done incredible harm to the name of Jesus and to his body. It's, a, it's an outrage. And yet it's getting worse, not better. What's wrong with us? Well, nothing. <laughs> because this is the way it's always been, unfortunately, in the church from the very beginning. However, the issues over which people divided in the early years of the Christian church were far more substantive than what we divide over today. In fact, if you boil it down, most of our divisions today are over personalities and ego. It's not over anything important. It's over people and our likes and dislikes. 
Well, today, we're going to begin a section of the book of Romans, and it must be one of the most important ideas because it's going to take us through almost two whole chapters, 14 and 15, in which the Apostle Paul is going to plead, plead with the Roman people, the Roman Christians, for unity, especially over issues that are disputable, that people don't have the same opinion on. And he's going to give us three very powerful reasons why we Christians should be united, not dividing all the time. And so someone titled it this way, getting along for the glory of God. And that's what we're going to talk about today, or I titled it, Unity Amidst Diversity. I like the picture. Though, do you know, you know the famous quote from Martin Luther King Jr.? He said something like, the most segregated hour in American, in our whole calendar, is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. That is not a compliment. The most segregated hour in our whole country is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. When we all go into our little camps based on our own little ideologies or race or ethnicity or socioeconomic background or little denominational desires, that's us. That's not what God wants. We know that because he made it crystal clear in the Bible. And you know the words from the book of, from many places in the Bible. One day, every single language that's ever been spoken, there will be people in God's kingdom. Every race, every socioeconomic background, every, every language, and there are thousands of them, will be represented around the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought to get a little start on it now because it's going to happen for all eternity. And how do you get a start on that? Well, that's what Romans chapter 14 is going to tell us about. Now, let me take you back 2,000 years. And the year is going to be 57 AD, and the place is Rome. Why I use 57 AD? Because that is the year in which the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome. Now, the church in Rome in 57 AD, um, this is, take, do your math, this is like 27 years after Jesus ascended to heaven. So it's a, a full generation after Jesus' time here on earth. And the church now had existed all over the Roman world in 27 years. It was spread widely. And of course, it spread to the capital city, which is Rome the most important city in the, Rome, in the world, the only city in the world of a million people for, for thousands of years, the only city that ever existed that was big was Rome. He writes the letter to this city. Now, the church in Rome, which was probably small, was composed of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. But by 57 AD, 27 years after the time of Jesus, the church was predominantly, at least in Rome, predominantly Gentile. And they had big problems. Big. Way bigger than we have. For example, the church decided to have a potluck. And by the way, in the early church, they met every week together and they always ate together. Where'd they get the food? Everyone brought their own food. Where did they meet? There were no church buildings for 300 years because Christianity was persecuted and people were killed for being Christians. 
For 300 years, there were no buildings. So where did they meet? Well, they met in the homes of the wealthier people in the church because they had bigger homes and more people could be accommodated in their home. So they get together and they're singing the praises to God. Probably they sang psalms from the Old Testament. They're singing praises to God. And then after they sang and, and people uh, like, like Paul would, would, would open up the tell about Jesus, they said, time to eat. Problem. Because some of the Christians were Jewish. And they being Jewish were extremely strong about what they ate and did not eat. They could not eat pork. They could not eat shrimp. They couldn't eat any unclean foods. Where did they get these crazy ideas from? The Bible, from God himself. God gave them the food laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, right from Moses. And the worst thing they could ever do was eat food that had been offered to idols. That was the worst thing you could do. Because if, you're, if the food had been offered to idols and you ate it, you were participating in idolatry, which to the Jewish people was one of the worst things you could ever do. Well, at the same meal, somebody brought shrimp cocktail and bacon and pork chops because they love pork. And they're in, the, in somebody's house. And of course, the Jewish people, they had to get up and leave because here's pork. That's an unclean food. And to make matters much, much worse, you see, in the Roman society among the Gentile people, the butcher shops were located on the backside of the pagan temple. So what they would do is they would bring the meat, the, the pigs and the cows in the front. They would be butchered there and then, out the, and then offered to the idols. And then out the backside of the temple was the butcher shop. So the food they ate had been offered to idols. The very worst thing that could ever happen to a Jew, and they're in the same church. What are you going to do? Well, of course, no potlucks. They did it every week. Oh, it gets worse, way worse. Because you see, the Jewish Christians, they believed that we need to gather for corporate worship on Saturday. Where'd they get that crazy idea from? God's finger. God himself with his own finger wrote it in tablets of stone. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. God himself said that. And so the Jewish people said, we have to worship on Saturday. But the Gentile Christians said, what? You see, at that time in, in, in Roman society, there were no weekends. They didn't have weekends. What they had was 49, and then it got to be larger, um, feast days all based around the Roman gods. So they weren't spaced every seven days. You might have three or four at a time. They, so they rested on the feast days. And then there were some Gentile Christians who said, well, wait a minute, when did Jesus rise from the dead? Sunday. So, That's our great event. Our great event is the resurrection of Jesus. Let's worship on Sunday. Boy, have you got a fight on your hands there. The Jewish people said, wait a minute. God himself told us to worship on Saturday. The Gentiles said, well, we don't have weekends around here. And besides, we like Sunday. So what are you going to do? Well, it's easy. It's no problem at all if you're an American. Form two churches. 
You've got your Jewish Christian church and your Gentile Christian church, and then all your problems are solved. Not. What you've just done is you've destroyed everything for which Christ died. You just destroyed Jesus. That's what you did. It doesn't work. And yet that's what we've been doing ever since, and we've never stopped. And guess what? We've done at First Baptist Church. We've been part of it. When you don't like the preacher, you don't like the preaching, you don't like the ministries, you don't like whatever it may be, you start your own church so everyone can get what they want. And after a while, all you associate with is people just like yourself, who think like you do, who have the same political identification as you do, and what's lost is incredible. Maturity in Christ is lost. The name of Jesus is destroyed in our culture. And all kinds of other bad things happen. But this is not God's way. And, they, and by the way, the Bible makes this clear over and over. And it's, it's one of the biggest problems that the Apostle Paul had to deal with. No, we're not going to have the first Jewish church of Rome and the first Gentile church of Rome. And then the second Jewish church of Rome. And then the second Gentile church of Rome. And the 599th church, Gen- Jewish church of Rome. <laughs> Keep splitting, splitting, splitting. Because what does that do to the body of Christ, which is supposed to be one? Well, he's up to 40,000 denominations now. And I don't mean churches. There are, there are millions of churches. 140,000 is the high number between 20 and 40,000 denominations in our world today. That's not God's intention. So how do you solve the problem? Well, that's what the Apostle Paul is going to address now. And today, he's going to begin by giving us three very strong, compelling reasons why we need to remain unified with other Christians, especially when we disagree. That's his point. So Romans chapter 14. Let's start with the first four verses. Now, the first thing that we have to do with fellow Christians with whom we do not agree on some disputable issue is we must not reject them or distance ourselves from them, which is our natural tendency. When we as Americans disagree with somebody, what we simply say is, okay, And what do we call it today? Now we're in the worst. We have never been this bad in the history of the world. Now it's called cancel culture. You don't agree with somebody. What do you do? You cancel them. And our culture thinks this is good. It's happening everywhere. It is the norm in America. I just went online this morning. Here's what it means. This is Merriam-Webster Dictionary. The practice or tendency of engaging in mass canceling as a way of expressing disapproval and exerting social pressure. When we don't agree with each other in America today, what do we do? We cancel each other out. You're not a person anymore. You don't matter anymore. I'm not listening to you anymore. I'm not going to deal with you anymore. God could not say anything much more 180 degrees different than that. Listen not to the cancel culture, but listen now to the word of God. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Let's stop there. That's a huge statement. Now, obviously, when you look at that, you have to immediately try to figure out what some of those words mean. 
Um, the word accept, we know that. That's an easy one. That means um, it's the opposite of reject. It's the opposite of cancel culture. It's or the opposite of ostracizing people, except one whose faith is weak. We'll come back to the weak in a minute. Without quarreling over disputable matters. The key to this passage is disputable matters. Every single place in the Bible will tell us that there are matters for us as Christians that are not disputable. They're crystal clear. That's not what we're talking about here. For example, in churches by the millions at this moment everywhere in the world, because it's 11 o'clock, everywhere in the world, there are people by the billions standing up and saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, what is that? That's the Apostles' Creed. Roman Catholics are saying that. Eastern Orthodox are saying that. Protestant people all over our world are saying that. This we all agree on. We agree that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We agree that he was born of the Virgin Mary, the virgin birth. He suffered under a historical person, Pontius Pilate. He was crucified dead and he rose again from the dead. We believe that. Those are not disputable matters. There are people in our world by the millions today who are saying those words that don't believe a word that they're saying. They are not Christians. Because when you say those words and you don't believe them, you're a, well, we're all hypocrites, but they're mega hypocrites. That's what we all believe. And when I say the Apostles' Creed, I mean every bit of it, every word that I say, because that's what it means. Those are not disputable matters. So the, in this passage, it's not talking about things that, that Christians don't dis dispute. And we'll get back to what that means a bit later. These are disputable matters. And so you might ask, well, what are disputable matters? Well, he's going to tell us. Here comes the next verse. One's person's faith allows him to eat anything. Another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Okay, he just defined it for us. Okay, he's going to say, there are people in the church who are, he calls them weak and strong. Who are they? Well, the weak people, he uses that. Now, by the way, when we say weak and strong, that's a, a pejorative term, the weak is, but he doesn't mean it in that sense because these are both believers, true believers in Christ. The weak are people, in this case, mostly Jewish people who have come into the church but they have a very strong views about matters such as what we eat and when we worship. And when they come into the church, they believe that if you do not, if you eat bacon with your eggs, you are sinning against God. They believe that firmly and with good reason because they, that's what God said in the Old Testament. But there are other Gentiles that have been eating bacon with their eggs every day since they were a little child. And they're in the same church. And they say, what's your problem? I like bacon. Everything's better with bacon. And they're in the same church. They're called the strong. And because these Jewish believers would not eat the meat at the potluck because they didn't know if it had been offered to an idol or not, they wouldn't eat meat. They would only eat vegetables. 
This is not for dietary reasons. This is for ceremonial reasons. Because they believed if you ate that meat that had been offered to idols, you are participating in idolatry. Well, you've got both in the same church. Well, what are you going to do? Well, the one who eats everything, that's the strong. What do they tend to do? <laughs> you Neanderthal, come on. Get a, get a clue. They're looking down their nose at those that have these scruples. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything, that's the weak. What do they tend to do? You eating that bacon? God's going to judge you. They're like this. They've got their finger wagging and the other one's looking down. Oh, you dumb little peons. And they're in the same church. What is that going to do to your church? You're finished. You must not do that. Why? What's his reason? Because God accepts them both. God takes those people of these, these Jewish believers who have these scruples and says, oh, I love you. I love you. I accept you. And these other believers who eat in their bacon and, and like to worship on Sunday say, oh, I love you. I accept you. He accepts them both. Whoa, <laughs> that's pretty, pretty hard to take. Um, so it goes on. What is the next verse? Is there another verse there? I forgot. Uh, oh, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Now, here's where I, my, my title for this one was The Master's Acceptance. It says, who are you? What right have you to... Um, what right have you to judge? What right have you to judge somebody else's servant? These Jewish believers, the weak, these Gentile believers, the strong, they are not your servants. They're mine, God says. Who, what right have you to judge somebody else's servant? It's like, what, have, what right have you, parents, to discipline someone else's children? You have no right to do that. Parents discipline their own children. You don't discipline somebody else's children. And God says, you don't judge somebody else's servant. To their own master, servants will stand or fall. And what will they do with God? God will let them stand. He's able to make them stand. With God, because he accepts both the weak and the strong, we're supposed to accept them as well. So says our God. The weak must not judge the strong, and the strong must not condemn the weak, is what God says. The first reason why we are to accept one another in spite of our differences over things indifferent, remember, these are not the crucial issues, and we'll come back to that in a minute, is because God accepts them, even if I do not. And we're not in the place of the judge. God is. You see, the weak Christians were judging and the strong Christians were despising the weak. Um, now, it is the tendency of religious people to judge and condemn one another, unfortunately. And in the early centuries of the Christian church, a lot of the fights were over food. Now, um, there are many disputable matters in the Christian church today. Celebrating Halloween. It's coming up this month. It's a pagan holiday, but so is Christmas originally. Or not. 
Um, communion. Every week or every month or whenever you gather or whatever. The length of someone's hair. Um, how much you use the media or what movies you watch and do not watch or which what kind of music is, is your taste or what kind of worship music do you have in a church or what is your choice with regard to your, your uh, children's schooling or do you wear a mask or not wear a mask? Are you vaccinated or not vaccinated? Churches are splitting today by the thousands over these issues. By the thousands. Splitting. I know some myself. How do you know what issue is we have to all agree And what issues are disputable? How do you know the difference? I'll give you four ways that I tell the difference. Please take these to mind. Those issues over which we Christians stand and we do not compromise ever will meet four criteria. Number one, there there will be explicit teaching on the issue in the New Testament. I don't know when last God wrote about vaccinations. I don't know, but I suppose it's in there somewhere or the wearing of masks. And remember, I said explicit. I don't mean some inference stuff. Is it explicitly taught in the word of God, particularly the New Testament? And I would almost add the Old and the New Testament. Secondly, do the members of the true church historically have they taken the same stand on the issue? If you, then you know what are those issues that are, in, that are indisputable, like the lordship of Jesus Christ, the Trinity, the, the depravity and dignity of human beings, salvation by grace through faith alone. These are indisputable issues. But where throughout history the church has disagreed, like On the mode of baptism, for example, there's great disagreement over the church on that. How often do you celebrate communion? Or what are the elements? Can you use grape juice versus wine in communion? Or these little styrofoam wafers we eat? Or does it have to be matzah? I mean, churches divide over these things. Those are disputable matters. The church throughout history has not agreed on this at all. Thirdly, is it... Genuine Christians from different cultural backgrounds, how do they see it? For those things that are indisputable, genuine Christians from different cultural backgrounds all over the world will have the same view. The Trinity, salvation by grace through faith, and on we can go. These are indisputable matters. But you find Christians, for example, find the Christians that we would believe everything the same in France would have wine with their dinner whereas in other more fundamentalist backgrounds like mine would not. That's a disputable matter. Why? True Christians in different cultures see it differently. And the fourth one is, what did Jesus say about the issue? For example, on food, what did Jesus say? Check out the verse. Look at Mark 7. Look for parentheses, and you will see this verse. And Jesus declared all foods clean. I don't know what else you say with that. Or go to Acts chapter 10, as God spoke to Peter in the vision. Peter, do not call unclean what God has called clean. You see, those are disputable matters. 
Paul says over and over again, it doesn't matter which day you worship God because God wants you to worship him every day. There's no one day that's better than another. Could we have a worship service on Thursday evenings? Yes, sure. Go right ahead. Is Sunday a good day? Great. We commemorate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's good. It's fine. Do we have to worship on Sunday? No. Could we worship on Saturday? Yes. But it's a disputable matter. That's what God says. And what did they fight over? Well, they fought over food. But God says, no, I am their master and I accept them both. But then he goes on. You see, one of the problems with Christians when we disagree with one another on disputable matters is we tend to look down our nose at Christians who do not hold our view because we think we're superior to them. This actually happened to me. For a variety of reasons, I personally am a teetotaler. I don't drink alcohol. I do not believe personally that the Bible says that this is the way it should be. This is my personal preference. You may wish to call me weak. That's fine. I don't mind. I actually had some people in our church come up to me and say, since you're a teetotaler, would you mind if we take your children out and teach them how to drink? That happened to me. Can you guess what I said? No, they're my children. But do you see the attitude from which that comes? You're this stupid little person that hasn't become enlightened yet. And since you don't know how to be enlightened, we'll help your children out because you're kind of a Neanderthal. That's what they're saying. I didn't take too much offense to it. I thought it was really dumb, but um, here's what God says. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. That's quite a statement. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. So the first thing he said is, remember, you weak and you strong, God accepts you both. But now he says, the choices we make as Christians on these disputable matters, they disagree with each other, but both of us are doing it because we believe we're following the Lord. And do you think you're supposed to try to hurt people over what they believe the Lord is telling them to do? And you think you should divide and look down your nose at people who do not hold the same view as you do? How dare you do that? How dare you do that? That's not the way God wants us to live. Someone wrote this. The answer to judgmentalism and despising others and not accepting others is not vacillation, wavering, indecisiveness, and uncertainty about what to do. That might create a kind of peace, but people without opinions tend to be able to get along pretty well. But... Evidently, Paul does not believe the solution to Christian disagreement is for all of us to become wishy-washy, even on minor issues. So, for example, 
Let's use vaccinations. I'll bet you if I polled this congregation right now, and by the way, it's nice for me to be able to speak to these issues because I'm temporary. I can run. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really, I love being here with you all. But there is a bit of freedom in that. I know we have different opinions on vaccinations. And, but God does not say, come on, become wishy-washy. He doesn't say that. He says, be fully convinced. Think it through. Come to a conviction about this. This is good. We don't want a bunch of mealy-mouthed, wishy-washy people in the church. We want courageous people who take a stand but realize that it's their opinion. And God has not spoken on this issue. And so though we disagree with each other, we love one another. Because we are not the Lord. There's only one Lord. And people have to stand before the Lord, not us. I'm not the Lord, thankfully. I don't tell you what to think or what to do. The Lord does that. And guess what he does? He may well bring us to different places, undisputable issues, not indisputable ones. That's the beauty. Well, if we haven't gotten the message yet, he's going to go to a third reason. He's going to say, not only do you need to, to accept the weak and the strong because God has accepted them both, and because you are not their Lord. The Lord is their Lord. They stand before the Lord, not you. But now he's going to say there's a third reason. The third reason is you do not judge each other on these disputable issues because God never made you the judge and the jury. That's Jesus' job. And look at what he's going to say. This is verses 9 to 12. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give account of ourselves to God. The strong don't you dare look down your nose at the weak. And you weak, don't you dare judge the strong. Why? You're not the judge. God's the judge. And all of us one day will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's a, a Greek term. It's called bima. I've seen a bima in Corinth. In the Isthmian Games... There was a place, an elevated platform, where the judge in the games st stood or sat. They would disqualify people if they didn't follow the rules. And then at the end of the competition, from the bima, the judge would pass out rewards to the winners. And that's the word the Apostle Paul uses. He said, for we will all as Christians stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Thankfully, this is not what's called the great white throne judgment where God will have people who are unbelievers stand before him and will declare their works before God. This is not a judgment of, 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 our, of our salvation. All of our sin is, is, as Christians has been taken away, covered and paid for in full by Jesus. But there are rewards, rewards for faithfulness to, to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, by the way, we will each have to stand individually before the, the judgment seat of Christ, where he will give out rewards. And ironically, 
in my background, at least. I'm not God, and I certainly, ooh, would I make a mess of that. But, you know, and in my background, the ones who I've seen in my background who are most faithful to serve Jesus are strangely the weak, not the strong. The ones who I've seen who are most faithful to the call of Christ in my background, this means nothing else, are the people who have these scruples, actually, which is not what I wish that would be, but it seems like that's what it often is. We accept one another in spite of our difference over things that are indifferent because we each have to stand individually before the judgment seat of Christ. We're not the judge. Jesus is. And that's good news. Well, in conclusion, how should we then live? This is what we Americans have been doing. All, it seems like almost all Americans, and I'm going to say all because I think every American Christian has gone to what is called easy church. We love easy church. Easy church is the place where everybody agrees with me. Isn't that nice? It's called the consumer church. We've been teaching people now in America for 50 years that the church is all about you. And by the way, you don't find that in the Bible. It's all about you. We want to know what your musical preferences are. We want to know what ministries you want. We want to know how we can meet your needs. That's called easy church. All the people in the church share the same political ideology. Oh, that's easy church. All of them have the same view of schooling and of, of, of political party affiliation and all that. Isn't that cute? Easy church. No, it stinks. And let me tell you why easy church stinks. Number one, easy church results in spiritual babies. I didn't make that up. Jesus, God did. Spiritual babies are those who never learn to love our siblings in Christ who do not agree with us. Babies. Wah, wah, wah. It's all we've got, a bunch of criers, crybabies. Here's what our Lord, this is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? I couldn't give you solid food because you're a bunch of babies. You like to divide over, I like this preacher better than that one. Don't you realize that's infancy? You're just an infant because you've never grown up enough to realize that we have to love people that we, we don't agree with. Boy, tell that to Americans. Secondly, the body of Christ, easy church, with easy church, the body of Christ is fractured and it brings disgrace to Christ's name. Did you know that the duns now outnumber the evangelicals in church? A dun, D-O-N-E, is a person who was once involved in an evangelical church who now claims no church affiliation at all, but still claims to be a Christian. They outnumber those today in America who go to churches. Why? Why is that number large and growing? Well, there are lots of reasons, but I think one of the main reasons is they have seen the church fight 
over and over again and divide over and over again. And they realize this is a disgrace to Christ's name. And we don't want to be a part of it. Why want to go every week and watch people fight with each other? I can do better things with my time, like go play golf or something else like that. Moreover, the corporate testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ is compromised. These are the words of Jesus himself. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Let's take the opposite. By this, all people will know that you are not my disciples if you don't love each other. So by our dividing with each other over and over and over again, what we're screaming to our world is, we don't love each other. We love easy church. That's what we're screaming. And that's not the right message. Besides, Jesus said his reality, his incarnation, his sinless life, his atoning sacrifice on the cross, his glorious resurrection, his ascension to heaven, all of that, all of that becomes implausible. The world cannot understand Jesus if we keep dividing. Here's his words. My prayer, this is Jesus' prayer, is not for them, my disciples alone. I pray for those, this is us, who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. In other words, if that group does not remain united, the world will never know that you sent me. Wow. And beside, fruitfulness, evangelistic fruitfulness, bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit will be nullified if we keep dividing. How good and how pleasant it is for brothers to remain, to live together in unity. I heard it through the grapevine that some of the other churches in Riverton were birthed out of First Baptist Church. I heard that from the grapevine. And as I suspect, those splits were not the result of sincere and substantive theological disagreements. They were not. Instead, they were over personalities and disputable matters and money and ego. We must do better for Christ's sake because the cause of Christ is at stake. So perhaps in the next 100 years, if Christ tarries, and I don't think he will, but if he does, Maybe First Baptist Church could be a force in Riverton, a powerful force for uniting the body of Christ rather than dividing it. And if so, the name of Jesus will be exalted. Let's pray. That's a prayer, Father. I pray for this wonderful body that you have planted in this city for more than a hundred years and out of which you've brought forth so much good fruit, but some rotten fruit too. And my prayer, Heavenly Father, for this body is that it would be an agent of unity among your people, that our love for Christians all over this town, even over these disputable matters, would grow, and that this would be a church full of people of all kinds whose love for one another and for Jesus is so much greater than their love for their own personal opinions. And as a result, that this body would become strong and powerful and impactful and full of joy. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand with me 
And by the way, if you want to throw your tomatoes, I can catch pretty well because I, I, <laughs> you won't hit me. I didn't mean to cause any offense to any of you. I really don't. But um, this is the word of our God. He wants us to love each other. And by each other, I mean believers all over this community. And of course, people who aren't believers, we love them too. We want everything for them to be able to come to Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, let us love one another. Amen.